Charles Spurgeon, who was a great British preacher in the 19th century, once said, I would bear any affliction rather than be burdened with a guilty conscience. I wonder if you can relate with that. I wonder if you can identify. I wonder if you can think of a time when you were particularly burdened with a guilty conscience. I wonder if you can recall how that affected you, how that affected your, your mind and in, in your, in your body and how that consumed your thinking. A guilty conscience is a heavy burden to bear. In a talk on justification, Kevin DeYoung said, we live in a world awash in guilt. And he referenced an article by William McClay, who was a professor at the University of Oklahoma at the time. And the article was entitled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. He was referring to the strange persistence of guilt in the modern, Western, developed world. He said, if anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered. It has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse, and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. I think what he was saying was that even though we don't use the old-fashioned religious language in talking about guilt, we in the West have not escaped the effects of guilt. He went on to say, I use the words strange persistence to suggest that the modern drama of guilt has not followed the script that was written for it. What script was he referring to? Well, he was referring to the script written by modern prophets such as Frederick Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud. Nietzsche believed the death of God, so to speak, would free people from any sense of indebtedness to a divine being. Freud tried to detach morality from guilt by treating it as a strictly subjective and emotional matter. But rather than becoming free of guilt by denying God or by denying any moral connection with guilt, Guilt has persisted. DeYoung said, now well into the 21st century, Nietzsche's aggressive secularism and Freud's therapeutic revolution have proven no match for what we know and what we feel with a nagging sense that we aren't doing enough and we aren't good enough. Indeed, people try to deal with guilt in a host of ways. We see people who try to deal with guilt through positive talk. You are good enough. Don't be so hard on yourself. 
We see people try to deal with guilt by minimizing sin. It's not that bad. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We see some people try to deal with their guilt by absolving themselves through activism or volunteerism or by virtue signaling on social media. We see people try to deal with their guilt simply by numbing themselves to it, by indulging in entertainment media, news media, social media, anything that can take their mind away from the reality of their guilt. Our culture has employed many strategies to address the problem of guilt without much success. We are preaching through the book of Hebrews, and our passage today is Hebrews chapter 9. Our passage today has extraordinarily good news for us regarding the problem of guilt and a guilty conscience. I'm going to read all of chapter 9, and I encourage you to follow along. A few things to look for as we read through this chapter are the inadequacy of the old, the superiority of the new, and the three appearances of Christ. So I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people." By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation." But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. First thing we see in chapter 9 is the inadequacy of the old. Of course, I'm referring to the old covenant or what the author of Hebrews refers to as the first covenant. In verses 1 through 10, he briefly described the sacrificial worship of the people of God under the old covenant. The covenant he's referring to is the covenant that the Lord established with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai after he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. The Lord led them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, revealed himself to them, and entered into this covenant relationship whereby he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. What a blessing. What a gift to be chosen by God, to be his special holy people set apart in the world. And here at the beginning of chapter 9, the author of Hebrews recounted the commands under the Old Covenant regarding how the priestly ministry was to be conducted, as well as a brief description of the structure where the ministry was to be performed. He referred to the tabernacle, which Moses was commanded to construct at the end of Exodus as the earthly place of holiness. During the days of Moses, the tabernacle was situated right in the middle of the Israelite camp. The tabernacle was constructed right in the middle of the camp, and the tribes all camped around the tabernacle so that it held the center place in their community. The tabernacle, also referred to as the tent of meeting, was set within an outer courtyard. When one entered the courtyard, they would see a bronze altar known as the altar of burnt offering, and beyond that was the tent. 
a curtain hung in the front of the tent and separated the courtyard from the front section called the holy place. The holy place was a room that was 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high, and housed the table, the bread of presence, and the golden lampstand. So the room was not very big, but it contained numerous significant items that carried symbolic significance for the people of Israel, reminding them of their covenant relationship of the Lord, reminding them of his, the light of his presence, which shone on them. Another curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place, and the most holy place was even smaller than the holy place as it was a 15-foot cube. Within the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, with the cherubim on either side pointing inward. And it was here that the Lord would descend to meet with his people in a cloud. The mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, in the tent of meeting, within this courtyard, in the middle of the Israelite camp was where the Lord would meet with his people. It was the hot spot of his presence, the special place of his dwelling. And God's presence, as we learned in our study of Leviticus, is the realm of life. In God's presence is life. In God's presence is blessing. To be away from God's presence is to be in the realm of death. And so for God to establish his covenant with his people, where he would dwell with them was a precious gift. Having, having described the tabernacle, the author of Hebrews briefly explained the ministry in each part. The priests would go into the holy place regularly to do such things as change out the bread of presence and bring oil for the lamp so that it would burn continually. But the second section, the most holy place, the special place of God's dwelling was very different from the holy place. While the priests would go regularly into the holy place, only the high priest would go into the most holy place and he but once every year. And he was not able to enter without a blood sacrifice. He offered the blood of a bull for his sins and the sins of his household and the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. And what the Israelites understood was that sacrificial blood was imperative for drawing near to God. The presence of God was awesome and terrifying. The presence of God was the realm of life, the place of God's blessing. It was good. There was nowhere else that they would want to be than in God's presence. Yet, God's presence was terrifying and that if they did not approach him in the right way, they would die because God is holy completely free from sin or the stain of sin. And he can have nothing to do with sin or that which belongs to the realm of death. And so the Israelites could not approach God in a way that was sinful, 
without having had their sins atoned for. So having established what took place under the old covenant, the place of worship, the ministry of the priests, the author of Hebrews began to teach and point out some of the inadequacies of the old covenant and the rituals and practices under the old covenant. First, during the age or period of the old covenant, while the tabernacle was standing, not meaning while it was physically erect, but meaning while it was still valid, the way to the holy places was not opened. Full access to God's presence was not freely available. God's people could only meet with God once a year and only through the mediation of a high priest. While God's presence in their midst was an extraordinary gift, the priesthood and the sacrifices under the old covenant were inadequate in providing a way for God's people to fully and freely enjoy his presence. The second thing he pointed out was that the regulations, gifts, and sacrifices under the old covenant merely dealt with external matters. They could not cleanse and perfect the conscience of the worshipers. A guilty conscience is a heavy burden. It is a weighty problem. And the sacrifices under the old covenant could not resolve this problem. George Guthrie writes, the problem under the old covenant consisted of the sacrificial system's inability to resolve one's awareness of personal guilt. Thus, the outer room of the tabernacle illustrated the inner spiritual condition of the people. Ultimately, the conscience, not a material earthly space, keeps a person from intimacy with God. Personal guilt keeps us from enjoying fellowship and intimacy with God. And the sacrificial system under the old covenant could not resolve that problem. So in the first 10 verses of chapter 9, the author recounted the place and the practices of worship under the old covenant at the tabernacle with the priests, but also demonstrated how they were inadequate. We are in need of something more, something greater, something better. In verse 10, he turns a corner and describes the superiority of the new. The old covenant served a purpose for Israel. The old covenant served a purpose for Israel in that it set them apart as the Lord's people on the earth and that it provided a way for them to live as God's people, enjoy his blessing, practice righteousness and justice, and proclaim his glory to the ends of the earth. The old covenant also pointed forward to something better and greater. Praise God that while the old covenant was inadequate, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is the mediator of a new and better covenant. Why is it better? First, as we saw last week, the location of Christ's priestly ministry is superior. Unlike the priests under the old covenant, 
the place of Christ's offering was in heaven rather than on earth. He didn't offer his sacrifice in a man-made tent, which we have seen was a copy or a shadow pointing to a greater reality. No, his offering was in the greater reality, in the true eternal place of God's dwelling, heaven. Whether we appreciate it or not, Christ entered the place where we want to be. We may have a distorted view of heaven. We may not appreciate its glory and its beauty, but I'm convinced that if we could get a taste, if we could get a sneak peek, if we could get a glimpse right now of the reality of heaven, the best things this world has to offer would pale in comparison. Everything that we experience here would become dull. And our hearts would be set afire, longing for the day when we would be with him fully and finally in heaven. Christ is our great high priest because the location of his ministry is in the presence of God, the heavenly places, the place where we want to be. I once heard a pastor say that the sun shining over the Swiss Alps is like the mashed potatoes under the heat lamp at KFC compared to the new heavens and the new earth. (laughs) The best things this world has to offer don't compare to what we will experience in the kingdom of God. Praise God that we have a high priest who ministers in the heavenly places. Second, his sacrifice in the heavenly places was infinitely better than all the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle. He did not offer the blood of bulls and goats. No, he offered something infinitely more valuable. He offered his own blood. Unlike the blood of animals, the precious blood of Christ has the power to cleanse us of all our sins and purify our guilty consciences. No matter how hard you try, you can do nothing to atone for your sins. You cannot make it right. You have sinned against God. And your sins are against a God who is infinitely holy. And therefore, your sins are infinite. And you are in need of a sacrifice of infinite value. Christ's blood is that sacrifice and the only sacrifice that can atone for your sins. You can't fix your sin problem. You can't try harder and live a good life and make yourself worthy. You can't do it. You can't fix your guilty conscience. You can try hard. You can suppress it. You can subdue it. You can try to ignore it. But you can't get rid of it. You need a better sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ's blood. And he offered his blood for us. You can do nothing to get rid of your guilt. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, provides Jesus Christ as a perfect sacrifice. Jesus willingly shed his own blood, which cleanses us of all sin and frees us from a guilty conscience. Isaac Watts wrote, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Because of what Christ's blood accomplishes for us, his sacrifice is central to our salvation, our identity, and how we are to live in the world. Consider a few things we learn about the blood of Jesus in Scripture. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And when he passed the wine, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, we read, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In Ephesians 2, 13, we read, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 Peter 1, 17-19, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Oh, the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all our sins, reconciles us to the Father, reconciles us to one another, that cleanses our guilty consciences. Christ, our high priest, our great high priest, is the mediator of a new and better covenant because the sacrifice that he offered is infinitely more valuable than any of the sacrifices offered under the old covenant. Third, Christ's offering was eternal. The priests under the old covenant had to offer sacrifices time and time and time again. They had to offer sacrifices daily on the altar of burnt offering uh, in the outer courtyard. The high priest had to offer sacrifices in the most holy place once a year, every year, repeatedly, time and time and time and time again. And though they offered these sacrifices repeatedly, time and time again, they never fully cleansed the consciences of the worshipers. Not so with Jesus He offered himself once for all to put away sin. There is no sacrifice left to be made. His sacrifice covers all our sin, past, present, and future. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Meaning the work of atonement was completed. It was finished. No more sacrifices were required to make atonement for the sins of God's people, for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has secured for us an eternal redemption, and we will receive an eternal inheritance. He's not going to let go of you. He's not going to let you stumble and fall right before the finish line and disqualify yourself. If you are in Christ Jesus, then your redemption is secure and eternal. As we have said throughout this sermon series, the Jewish Christians to whom Hebrews was written were tempted to lose confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn back to the Jewish rituals and practices of the old covenant. They were facing hard times, challenges, opposition, suffering. They probably wanted some kind of relief. They wanted relief from feeling hard-pressed, and maybe they were tempted to go back to the rituals and practices under the old covenant because they wanted some tangible way that they could see how their sins were forgiven. Maybe they were doubting the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice and wanted to see the animal's blood shed to feel better about their sins being forgiven. Whatever the case, they were tempted to abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were looking for relief. It was good for the people of God to offer the sacrifices he commanded during the old covenant period of time, even though the sacrifices were inadequate. But now that Christ has established the new covenant with a better sacrifice, it would be wrong for God's people to go back to doing things the old way. That which was inadequate had given way to that which is fully sufficient. To go back would be to misunderstand God's revelation of himself. It would be to miss his unfolding plan of redemption. It would be a failure to trust in the sacrifice that he provided for his people. It would ultimately be a rejection of him and his salvation. We here are not tempted to return to the old covenant rituals and practices. But we are tempted to forsake Christ and seek things that give us temporary relief. We're tempted to deal with our guilty consciences in ways other than turning to Jesus. We're tempted to stop following him when it is hard. We're tempted to minimize and dismiss his commands. We're tempted to excuse our sin. We're tempted to numb our minds through the endless consumption of media. We too are tempted. But the eternal redemption and inheritance that Christ has secured for us should help us set our hearts and minds on eternity. Rather than looking for temporary relief, we should set our minds on the things above, rejoicing in our redemption that is in Christ Jesus, rejoicing in the inheritance 
that he has given to us, which we will enjoy for all of eternity, it will never fade. No one can take it from us. Rather than seeking temporary relief, brothers and sisters, let us look to Christ and hold fast to the gospel, knowing that he is our great high priest and the mediator of a new and better covenant. Finally, in our passage, we see the three appearances of Christ. First, Christ appeared on earth as our great high priest. He came to earth and lived a life without sin. And then he went to the cross willingly to take the punishment for our sin in our place. He laid down his life. He willingly gave himself as a sacrifice. His body was broken. His blood was shed. We read of his second appearing in verse 24, which says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He appeared on earth, laid down his life, shed his blood for us, and is now appearing in heaven on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, think about this. If you are in Christ Jesus, then Christ is appearing in heaven before God on your behalf right now, interceding for you, not pleading with God, saying, look at how good they are. Look at the good deeds they've done. No, he's interceding on your behalf in the presence of God based on his work, his finished work for you. Christ is presently interceding for us. That is not all. We also read that he will appear a second time. The author of Hebrews reminds us that Christ will come to earth a second time, but the purpose of his coming will be different from that of his first appearance. He will not come to offer a sacrifice for sins, but to finally save all who believe in him and who are waiting for him. He will appear again to bring us home. In John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus told his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Praise God, this is our hope. Our hope is in Christ and his promise to bring us home, that we might be with him in all his glory for all of eternity. Christ appeared on earth. He is appearing now in heaven on our behalf, and he will appear again when he comes again to bring us home. But the second coming of Christ will not be a good day for those who do not believe in Christ. We are reminded 
that it is appointed for man to die once and then judgment. We live in this period of time between the first and second appearing of Christ, the first and second coming of Christ. And we have the opportunity now to believe in Christ and to be saved. But when we die, that is it. There will be no more chances at that point. It is appointed for man to die once and then judgment. There will be a final judgment. Friend, if you're not a Christian, our hope and prayer for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved while you have the opportunity. See, all of us are sinners. All of us are guilty. We all have guilty consciences because we have all sinned against God. We've all fallen short of his perfect standards. Every single one of us deserves judgment. But God in his mercy has provided a way for us to be saved. He's done so by providing Jesus, the son of God, as the savior of the world. And now guilty sinners like us who go to Jesus, who believe in him, will be forgiven of all their sins and be saved. And all those who are in Christ Jesus do not need to fear the final judgment. We do not need to fear death because we know that our sins have been atoned for by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, I plead with you, believe in Christ, be saved. Let today be the day of salvation. Do not go another day bearing the burden of a guilty conscience. Believe. Be saved. Brothers and sisters, I hope this passage will help us find a few things. I hope this passage will help us find peace, encouragement, and comfort. I hope this passage will help us find peace from a guilty conscience. Freedom from a guilty conscience is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Believe in Christ. Trust in him. Take him at his word. Go to him. Abide in him. Walk with him. There is freedom and peace from a guilty conscience in Jesus Christ. You will find freedom from a guilty conscience nowhere else but in Christ alone. Find peace in Christ. I hope you will find encouragement from this passage. I hope you will find encouragement from the fact that Christ, our great high priest, is interceding for you right now. When you are discouraged, when you are tempted to doubt, know that he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will not give up on you. He will continually intercede in heaven before the throne of God for you. Be encouraged. I hope you will find comfort. The sorrows and the trials of this life are many, but this world is not our home. We have a better home prepared for us, and Christ has promised to take us home. So when the burdens of this life, when the trials of this life, when the sorrows of this life are weighty, and at times they will be weighty and seem almost unbearable. Remember that Christ has promised 
to bring you home. And when we arrive safely at home with Christ and his kingdom for all of eternity, all the troubles of this life will quickly fade and will become distant memories. So brothers and sisters, I hope you find peace. I hope you find encouragement. I hope you find comfort in this passage. And I hope that the truth that encourages you here will help you to hold fast to Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation. We thank you for your unfolding plan of redemption. We thank you for the new and better covenant that is mediated by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the glorious implications and benefits of this new covenant. We pray you would help us to understand these things. Help us to know you. Help us to believe. We pray that we will be those who find peace and encouragement and comfort in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, to believe these things, so that we will hold fast to Jesus and his gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.